Chapter Twenty Three of Wives and Daughters by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three. Osborne Hamley reviews his position. Osborne had his solitary cup of coffee in the drawing room. He was very unhappy too, after his fashion. He stood on the hearth rug, pondering over his situation. He was not exactly aware how hardly his father was pressed for ready money. The squire had never spoken to him on the subject without being angry, and many of his loose, contradictory statements, all of which, however contradictory they might appear, had their basis in truth, were set down by his son to the exaggeration of passion. But it was uncomfortable enough to a young man of Osborne's age to feel himself continually hampered for want of a five-pound note. The principal supplies for the liberal, almost luxurious table at the hall came off the estate, so that there was no appearance of poverty as far as the household went, and as long as Osborne was content at home he had everything he could wish for. But he had a wife elsewhere. He wanted to see her continually, and that necessitated journeys. She, poor thing, had to be supported. Where was the money for the journeys and for Amay's modest wants to come from? That was the puzzle in Osborne's mind just now. While he had been at college, his allowance, heir of the Hamleys, had been three hundred, while Roger had to be content with a hundred less. The payment of these annual sums had given the squire a good deal of trouble, but he thought of it as a merely temporary inconvenience, perhaps unreasonably thought so. Osborne was to do great things, take high honours, get a fellowship, marry a long-descended heiress, live in some of the many uninhabited rooms at the hall, and help the squire in the management of the estate that would sometime be his. Roger was to be a clergyman. Steady, slow Roger was just fitted for that, and when he declined entering the church, preferring a life of more activity and adventure, Roger was to be anything. He was useful and practical, and fit for all the employments from which Osborne was shut out by his fastidiousness and his pseudo-genius. So it was well he was an eldest son, for he would never have done to struggle through the world. And as for his settling down to a profession, it would be like cutting blocks with a razor. And now here was Osborne, living at home, but longing to be elsewhere. His allowance stopped in reality, Indeed, the punctual payment of it during the last year or two had been owing to his mother's exertions. But nothing had been said about its present cessation by either father or son. Money matters were too sore a subject between them. Every now and then the squire threw him a ten-pound note or so, but the sort of suppressed growl with which it was given, and the entire uncertainty as to when he might receive such gifts, rendered any calculation based upon their receipt exceedingly vague and uncertain. "'What in the world can I do to secure an income?' thought Osborne, as he stood on the hearthrug, his back to a blazing fire, his cup of coffee sent up in the rare old china that had belonged to the hall for generations, his dress finished as dress of Osborne's could hardly fail to be. One could hardly have thought that this elegant young man, standing there in the midst of comfort that verged on luxury, should have been turning over that one great problem in his mind. But so it was.' "'What can I do to be sure of a present income? "'Things cannot go on as they are. "'I should need support for two or three years, "'even if I entered myself at the Temple or Lincoln's Inn. "'It would be impossible to live on my pay in the army. "'Besides, I should hate that profession. "'In fact, there are evils attending all professions. "'I couldn't bring myself to become a member of any I've ever heard of. "'Perhaps I'm more fitted to take orders than anything else. "'But to be compelled to write weekly sermons, "'whether one has anything to say or not, and probably 
doomed only to associate with people below one in refinement and education. Yet poor Emmy must have money. I can't bear to compare our dinners here, overloaded with joints and games and sweets, as Morgan will persist in sending them up, with Emmy's two little mutton chops. Yet what would my father say if he knew I'd married a Frenchwoman? In his present mood he'd disinherit me, if that is possible, and he'd speak about her in a way I couldn't stand. A Roman Catholic, too. Well, I don't repent it. I do it again. Only if my mother had been in good health, if she could have heard my story and known Aimé. As it is, I must keep it a secret. But where to get money? Where to get money? Then he bethought him of his poems. Would they sell and bring him in money? In spite of Milton, he thought they might. And he went to fetch his manuscripts out of his room. He sat down near the fire, trying to study them with a critical eye, to represent public opinion as far as he could. He had changed his style since the Mrs. Heman's days. He was essentially imitative in his poetic faculty, and of late he had followed the lead of a popular writer of sonnets. He turned his poems over. They were almost equivalent to an autobiographical passage in his life. Arranging them in their order, they came as follows. To M.A. walking with a little child. To M.A. singing at her work. To M.A. turning away from me while I told my love. Emma's Confession Emma in Despair The Foreign Land in Which My Emma Dwells The Wedding Ring The Wife When he came to this last sonnet, he put down his bundle of papers and began to think. The Wife Yes, and a French wife, and a Roman Catholic wife, and a wife who might be said to have been in service. And his father's hatred of the French, both collectively and individually, collectively as tumultuous brutal ruffians who murdered their king and committed all kinds of bloody atrocities individually as represented by boney and the various caricatures of johnny crapold that had been in full circulation about five-and-twenty years before this time when the squire had been young and capable of receiving impressions as for the form of religion in which mrs osborne hamley had been brought up it is enough to say that catholic emancipation had begun to be talked about by some politicians and that the sullen roar of the majority of the englishmen at the bare idea of it was surging in the distance with ominous threatenings the very mention of such a measure before the squire was as osborne well knew like shaking a red flag before a bull and then he considered that if aimé had the unspeakable the incomparable blessing of being born of english parents in the very heart of england warwickshire for instance and had never heard of priests or mass or confession or the pope or guy fawkes but had been born baptized and bred in the church of england without having ever seen the outside of a dissenting meeting-house or a papist chapel even with all these advantages her having been a what was the equivalent for bon in english nursery governess was a term hardly invented a nursery-maid with wages paid down once a quarter liable to be dismissed at a month's warning and having her tea and sugar doled out to her would be a shock to his father's old ancestral pride that he would hardly ever get over if he saw her thought osborne if he could but see her but if the squire were to see aimee he would also hear her speak her pretty broken english precious to her husband, as it was in it that she had confessed brokenly with her English tongue that she loved him soundly with her French heart. And Squire Hamley piqued himself on being a good hater of the French. She would make such a loving, sweet, docile little daughter to my father. She would go as near as any one could towards filling up the blank void in this house if he would but have her. But he won't. He never would. 
and he shan't have the opportunity of scouting her. Yet if I called her Lucy in these sonnets, and if they made a great effect, were praised in Blackwood and the Quarterly, and all the world was agog to find out the author, and I told him my secret, I could if I was successful. I think then he would ask who Lucy was, and I could tell him all then. If—how I hate ifs! If me no ifs! My life has been based on whens, and first they have turned to ifs, and then they have vanished away. It was when Osborne gets on us, and then if Osborne, and then a failure altogether. I said to him, A, when my mother sees you, and now it is if my father saw her, with a very faint prospect of its ever coming to pass. So he let the evening hours flow on, and disappear in reveries like these, winding up with a sudden determination to try the fate of his poems with a publisher with the direct expectation of getting money for them and an ulterior fancy that if successful they might work wonders with his father when roger came home osborne did not let a day pass before telling his brother of his plans he never did conceal anything long from roger the feminine part of his character made him always desirous of a confidant and as sweet sympathy as he could extract but roger's opinion had no effect on osborne's actions and roger knew this full well so when osborne began with i want your advice on a plan i have got into my head roger replied someone told me that the duke of wellington's maxim was never to give advice unless he could enforce its being carried into effect now i can't do that and you know old boy you don't follow out my advice when you've got it not always i know not when it doesn't agree with my own opinion you're thinking about this concealment of my marriage but you're not up in all the circumstances you know how fully I meant to have done it, if there hadn't been that row about my debts, and then my mother's illness and death. And now you've no conception how my father has changed, how irritable he has become. Wait till you've been home a week. Robinson, Morgan, it's the same with them all, but the worst of all with me. Poor fellow, said Roger. I thought he looked terribly changed, shrunken, and his ruddiness of complexion altered. Why, he hardly takes half the exercise he used to do, so it's no wonder— he has turned away all the men off the new works, which used to be such an interest to him, and because their own cobs stumbled with him one day and nearly threw him, he won't ride it, and yet he won't sell it and buy another, which would be the sensible plan. So there are two horses eating their heads off while he's constantly talking about money and expense. And that brings me to what I was going to say. I'm desperately hard up for money, and so I've been collecting my poems, reading them well, you know, going over them quite critically, in fact, and I want to know if you think Dayton would publish them. You've got a name in Cambridge, you know, and I dare say he would look at them if you offered them to him. I can but try, said Roger. But I'm afraid you won't get much by them. I don't expect much. I'm a new man and must make my name. I should be content with a hundred. If I would a hundred pounds, I'd set myself to do something. I might keep myself in demay by my writings while I studied for the bar, or if the worst came to the worst, a hundred pounds would take us to Australia. Australia? Why, Osborne, what could you do there? And leave my father? I hope you'll never get your hundred pounds, if that's the use you're to make of it. Why, you'd break the squire's heart. It might have done once, said Osborne gloomily. But it wouldn't now. He looks at me askance and shies away from conversation with me. Let me alone for noticing and feeling this kind of thing. It's this very susceptibility to outward things that gives me what faculty I have— and it seems to me as if my bread and my wife's too were to depend upon it. You'll soon see for yourself the terms which I am on with my father. Roger did soon see. 
his father had slipped into a habit of silence at mealtimes, a habit which Osborne, who was troubled and anxious enough for his own part, had not striven to break. Father and son sat together, and exchanged all the necessary speeches connected with the occasion, civilly enough. But it was a relief to them when their intercourse was over and they separated, the father to brood over his sorrow and his disappointment, which were real and deep enough and the injury he had received from his boy, which was exaggerated in his mind by his ignorance of the actual steps Osborne had taken to raise money. If the money-lenders had calculated the chances of his father's life or death in making their bargain, Osborne himself had thought only of how soon and how easily he could get the money requisite for clearing him from all imperious claims at Cambridge, and for enabling him to follow Aimé to her home in Alsace, and for the subsequent marriage. As yet, Roger had never seen his brother's wife. Indeed, he had only been taken into Osborne's full confidence after all was decided in which his advice could have been useful. And now, in the enforced separation, Osborne's whole thought, both the poetical and practical sides of his mind, ran upon the little wife who was passing her lonely days in farmhouse lodgings, wondering when her bridegroom husband would come to her next. With such an engrossing subject, it was perhaps no wonder that he unconsciously neglected his father. But it was none the less sad at the time, and to be regretted in its consequences. "'I may come in and have a pipe with you, sir, mayn't I?' said Roger, that first evening, pushing gently against the study door, which his father held only half open. "'You'll not like it,' said the squire, still holding the door against him, but speaking in a relenting tone. The tobacco I use isn't what young men like. Better go and have a cigar with Osborne. No, I want to sit with you, and I can stand pretty strong tobacco. Roger pushed in, the resistance slowly giving way before him. It will make your clothes smell. You'll have to borrow Osborne's sense to sweeten yourself, said the squire grimly, at the same time pushing a short, smart, amber-mouthed pipe to his son. No, I'll have a church warden. Why, father, do you think I'm a baby to put up with a doll's head like this? Looking at the carving upon it, the squire was pleased in his heart, though he did not choose to show it. He only said, Osborne brought it me when he came back from Germany. That's three years ago. And then for some time they smoked in silence. But the voluntary companionship of his son was very soothing to the squire, though not a word might be said. The next speech he made showed the direction of his thoughts. Indeed, his words were always a transparent medium through which the current might be seen. A deal of a man's life comes and goes in three years. I've found that out. And he puffed away at his pipe again. While Roger was turning over in his mind what answer to make to this truism, the squire again stopped his smoking and spoke. Hmm. I remember when there was all that fuss about the Prince of Wales being made regent. I read somewhere, I dare say it was in a newspaper, that kings and their heirs apparent were always on bad terms. Osborne was quite a little chap then. He used to go out riding with me on White Surrey. You won't remember the pony we called White Surrey. I remember it. But I thought it a tall horse in those days. Ah, that was because you were such a small lad, you know. I'd seven horses in the stable then, not counting the farm horses. I don't recollect having a care then. 
except she was always delicate, you know. But what a beautiful boy Osborne was. He was always dressed in black velvet. <laughs> it was a foppery. But it wasn't my doing, and it was all right, I'm sure. He's a handsome fellow now, but the sunshine has gone out of his face. He's a good deal troubled about this money and the anxiety he has given you, said Roger, rather taking his brother's feelings for granted. Not he, said the squire, taking the pipe out of his mouth and hitting the bowl so sharply against the hob that it broke in pieces. Oh, there. But never mind. I say, not he, Roger. He's none troubled about the money. It's easy getting money from Jews if you're the eldest son and the heir. <laughs> they just ask, how old is your father? And has he had a stroke or a fit? And it's settled out of hand. And then they come prowling about a place and running down the timber and land. <laughs> Don't let us speak of him. It's no good, Roger. He and I are out of tune, and it seems to me as if only God Almighty could put us to rights. It's thinking of how he grieved her at last that makes me so bitter with him. And yet there's a deal of good in him, and he's so quick and clever. If only he'd give his mind to things— now you were always slow, Roger. All your masters used to say so. Roger laughed a little. Yes, I'd many a nickname at school for my slowness, said he. Never mind, said the squire consolingly. I'm sure I don't. If you were a clever fellow like Osborne yonder, you'd be off a caring for books and writing and you'd perhaps find it as dull as he does to keep company with a bumpkin squire Jones, like me. Yet I dare say they think a deal of you at Cambridge, said he after a pause, since you've got this fine wranglership. I'd nearly forgotten that. The news came at such a miserable time. Well, yes, uh, they're always proud of the senior wrangler of the year up at Cambridge. Next year I must abdicate. The squire sat and gazed into the embers, still holding his useless pipe-stem. At last he said in a low voice, as if scarcely aware he had got a listener. I used to write to her when she was away in London, and tell her the whole news. But no letter will reach her now. Nothing reaches her. Roger started up. Ah, where's the tobacco-box, father? Let me fill you another pipe. And when he had done so, he stooped over his father and stroked his cheek. The squire shook his head. You've only just come home, lad. You don't know me as I am nowadays. Ask Robinson. I won't have you asking Osborne. He ought to keep it to himself. But any of the servants will tell you. I'm not like the same man for getting into passions with them. I used to be reckoned a good master, but that's past now. Osborne was once a little boy, and she was once alive. And I was once a good master, a good master, yes. 
It's all past now. He took up his pipe and began to smoke afresh, and Roger, after a silence of some minutes, began a long story about some Cambridge man's misadventure on the hunting field, telling it with such humour that the squire was beguiled into hearty laughing. When they rose to go to bed, his father said to Roger, Well, we've had a pleasant evening. At least I have. But perhaps you haven't, for I'm but poor company now, I know. I don't know when I've passed a happier evening, father, said Roger, and he spoke truly, though he did not trouble himself to find out the cause of his happiness. End of chapter 23